Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're exploring interactions from drug studies in a laboratory. If this effect is as big as he's saying, somebody should have discovered this long before he did. To global wisdom on avoiding hangovers. Beber cerveza antes de tomar vino no previene los Be- síntomas. Beer before wine, you're going to be fine. Wine before beer, you're going to be queer. To the novel recipes developed by an Indian-American family deep in the heart of Texas. And then my mom's sort of coming to America and learning that uh, white parents love to melt cheese on things to get their kids to eat it. She was like, this is genius. <laughs> Be sure to subscribe to Meat in 3. That's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome, welcome. This is Why Food Podcast on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your co-host, Jenny Dorsey, and Ethan is unfortunately not with us today because he's on a scouting trip in Zanzibar, but we promise he'll be back next week with uh, excellent stories to uh, tell us about his time away. But today, I'm super excited to welcome Will Horowitz to the studio. He is the co-founder of two amazing restaurants here in New York, Duck's Eatery, as well as Harriet and Ida's Meat and Supply Company got that right, um, as well as a recent co-author of the book uh, Salt Smoke Time, which came out a few weeks ago. Will, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. It's wonderful being here. Well, I'll jump right into the book first since it's uh, top of mind. Can you tell us a little bit about the book, inspiration behind the book, and also who you co-authored it with? Sure. Uh, so um, I wrote the book mainly with my sister, uh, who also did the illustrations, which are gorgeous, gorgeous. And um you know, this book was kind of a long time coming. I pushed off to kind of doing the author thing for a while. And um, I wanted to really create a book less around recipes mm-hmm. and more just around what I'm thinking right now, how I'm cooking, what my view is on the food system at large and sustain- sustainability. And so much of that for us involves nature and so involves, involves heritage cooking and fermentation and smoking. And um, Julie, my sister, did incredible, like I said, illustrations for field guides for foraging inside there. And we it's really a book on how can nature and our past inspire us to create more sustainable systems, and whether that be for our own cupboard and kitchen and the way we live to... Um, possibly even as communities and larger. A lot of your ethos is around foraging, being able to, you know, be in sync with nature, uh, being able to kind of bring back heritage foods. Can you talk about where you got a lot of that inspiration from? You went to a certain school in Colorado um, and kind of like how that mentality has developed as you've also opened restaurants on your own. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, for me, it's, it's, you know, these things are really kind of very intimate to my own story. My grandparents on my father's side owned a Jewish delicatessen in Harlem where they were pickling, fermenting everything, curing their, you know, tongues and, and corned beefs out on the fire escape out back <laughs> um, up in Harlem and, and then the Bronx. And um, 
on my mother's side, my family is from Orient and Greenport in the North Fork of Long Island, which uh, to people that don't know are kind of an old sort of colonial, still very working class um, fishing towns. And, um, and my grandfather was a, a, a fisherman and just avid kind of bayman. And my grandmother was a French trained chef. Oh, wow. So we had a lot of heritage in our family, for sure, from, you know, like I said, you know, pickling and smoking pastrami's and tongues and sauerkrauts to, um, you know, massive, you know, lobster and clam bakes out on the beach every year and, and working with seaweed and clams and really everything that the bay out there has to offer. Um, and then as I started growing up, a lot of my focus became in primitive survival. Okay. And uh, just studying a lot of First Nation groups and techniques and homesteading. And I went to, like you mentioned, uh, you know, the weird school I went to was... <laughs> I didn't say weird. <laughs> <laughs> is Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado. Um, and I was specifically there originally for the writing program, which is the Jack Kerouac Institute of Disembodied Poetics, or at least then it was. And, and so that was nice for me to write this because I started off as a writer. I just had to cook for... Sure, took a detour. A couple de- decades <laughs> to get someone to publish my writing. And, and um, but what I ended up going into there was Buddhism and um, mainly permaculture. And permaculture is, is kind of the art of setting up um, symbiotic farm systems and homesteading systems uh, that really work for themselves. So the idea of planting trees... You know, in a place where, um, you know, you might want to grow things that don't really need as much light to inoculating soils that might work as better composters for that land to green low brush and really just controlling water and in ecosystems and inspiring a piece of land to grow for itself and to create more topsoil. So there's a joke of uh, permaculture to me, which is. You know, how do we create a farm where if we go on vacation for a few weeks, it'll only actually get better without us there uh-huh. messing it up. And and that's kind of really exemplifies the, these exact systems. And what I've done in cooking and food and everything else is I've tried to take those same lessons and apply it to so much more than just agriculture systems. And just about the topsoil that you mentioned, we talked a little bit about this at lunch, but can you mm. kind of explain like why topsoil is so important to a farm, what it is, <laughs> like what people are, are trying to constantly preserve about it? Well, I think, you know, from a food system level, you're talking about a lot of nutrients that you're getting. So right now, all the problems with a lot of factory farming, industrialized farming, is that there's no nutrients in anything. Um or at least it's, it's like the Wonder Bread situation. We're adding it back in to the land. We've taken it out and we're adding it back in. Mm-hmm. The idea of creating systems that are actually going to um, grow, you know, or, or at least build more topsoil is that we're creating just so much more fertile farmlands. And the same problems that we had, you know, back in the you know, 20s and 30s with the dust bowls and stuff like that in the West is because we just kept taking from land. And really, the only system that works are ones that you can figure out that are going to be healthy enough to do the, quite the opposite. They're going to give to the land. And, and that works only if you're doing something that creates topsoil. 
So um, after going to school and studying kind of like this holistic view on agriculture, what inspired you to go into go and start restaurants? Is that kind of the first stance of changing how this works? <laughs> no, it was, it was more by mistake, to be honest. <laughs> uh, I got out of Naropa and and uh, honestly, I was a ski bum at the time <laughs> living in Colorado. And I was, you know, really had a, you know, a backpack half on every day and just traveling around and hitching around where I could and staying, you know, in the woods as much as I could. And uh, cooking for me was something I'd always done. It was something I did with my family, my grandparents. It was, you know, always the go-to job when I was growing up. Yeah. Um, and uh, it was something you could do at night so you could still enjoy your day. And so, <laughs> That's true. And so, you know, what really was something that I did as survival was something that I grew more and more in love with. And as I went down that road, I became more and more successful at it as a chef. And more and just better at the trade of working in a line and just making food and hopefully creating good food. And and that to me was an art form and something that spoke to me really well. And as I kept getting more and more proficient, like anything, you, you start, you know, allowing your other passions to kind of create more of a free for all mm -hmm. within that, that discipline. And and now, you know, circa you know, 14, 15 years from there, I've kind of really taken that circle back into the sustainability stuff that I started with. And so it's been really, really a very fun trip. And when you first started Ducks, which is going on, you said, eight, nine years? Yeah, yeah um, about eight years. A lot, of, a lot of it was centered around meat, and it's kind of yeah. like moving potentially in a different direction. Can you talk a little bit about kind of the early successes around um, what techniques that you were doing there and how that's translated over time? Yeah, so, uh, you know, a big part of my focus is around smoking foods and, like I said, fermenting foods and really just creating foods the long, often longer way and older way. And one of the reasons we did that is because that was from backpacking and camping and permanent survival in my family that was near and dear to me. But also because if anyone's ever been in Duck Seedery, the kitchen is about the size of a normal bathroom stall. <laughs> um in most restaurants and and we were doing enormous amount of covers um and so in order for us to do that and do that in a way that we really felt great about what we were doing and the food put we were putting out we had to create these systems where everything was either slow cooked brine cured fermented whatever it was smoked for days on end sometimes weeks on end um sometimes years on end or it was still wiggling around fresh a lot. <laughs> so there was, there was, you know, only two ways about it. There wasn't a lot of room for a lot of multi-step uh, dishes, you know, while you're on the line. And, and that was the way we can still create food that had incredible depth of flavor to it. And the other thing that we, you know, was an issue at Ducks in the beginning and a small restaurant I think is always going to be is money. And so, you know trying to open up a small restaurant without any money is, is difficult as, as is. And at the same time, we didn't want that to sacrifice the food either. Mm -hmm. So we started looking towards our farmers and butchers for off cuts and things that we can still get inexpensively, but from good farmers and good people. So one of the first dishes that became, we became really famous for there was a smoked goat snack, um, which kind of rotates between a goat and a lamb. And, and it was because we had a butcher that had too many of them. It was yeah. that simple. Um, 
And people never, usually would never order that otherwise. People would never order that. But, I mean, I'll be honest. I served, I even this is eight years later, it's the only thing that stays on the menu. And uh, I think yesterday we filmed something for uh, as mainstream as a channel as Barstool Sports serving <laughs> goat snack and smoked eel to a bunch of uh, linebackers. Really? And and, and so, <laughs> and for me, I'm more than happy to do that. I mean, we originally, the reason the goat neck was so famous originally because it was on Guy Fiore. Yeah. And I have was zero, it zero, it was Flavortown. And, <laughs> and I have zero pride. <laughs> but to be honest, when we first got that call years ago, I was going out to my partners to, I think my, my co-chef was outside smoking a cigarette at Ducks and I was going out there to just laugh a little bit and say, I think I was like, hey. Uh, let's think of really fun ways to tell Guy Fury to go fuck himself. <laughs> and 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 he looked at me like I was the biggest idiot in the world because I was the biggest idiot in the world because you can't responsibly turn things like that down in sure. small businesses. And the truth of the matter is, and what I've learned eight years later, um, maybe not more mature, but I've just somehow <laughs> it's been ingrained into me, is that those things really help and if i'm using off cuts and i'm using these weird things i'm either going to cook it for myself or i'm cooking it for everyone else and there's mm -hmm. no two ways about it so if i'm cooking it for everyone else i want to be able to make sure that that becomes as accessible mm -hmm. as possible and i want to make that more of a household name i want to make goat necks more of a household name until it's not sustainable and trust me we almost got there at a certain <laughs> point after so many hundred goat necks, you're kind of picturing this, like, you know, Gary Larson Farside <laughs> cartoon of a bunch of, like, necklace goats yeah. laying around. So, so you know, we might have danced around that line a bit, but that's the idea is how do you make these things accessible? It doesn't mean you have to compromise making something really fucking cool or interesting as a chef. I have no problem serving some of the same things I've served to, you know, an Instagram account like Barstool or anything like that. I have no problem serving something to them that aren't known for as much interesting food and stuff as I do serving it to any top chef or critic in the world. Mm -hmm. And and that's because it's 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 not just interesting. It just tastes really fucking good. And that's at the heart of all these techniques and using offcuts. So we started, <laughs> sorry, it's a long <laughs> circle around to the original question. We started doing these techniques to meats because it's so, it was so obvious. Yep. Um, We've done that for a long time. It was interesting. Um, and now we're doing it more to vegetables. Yeah, so talk about that. Like, talk about this radish charcuterie that you entered in a competition or some of the yeah. carrot hot dogs. <laughs> and we started doing this stuff a few years ago. And we started, you know, we had so much experience in just, you know, making our own bacons and hams and all this type of stuff and salumis. Um we just simply applied a lot of those old school methods to a lot of vegetables. And, you know, for me as a chef, I think for a lot of chefs, whether they can earn a situation where they can publicly admit it or not, um, you know, the alternative meat world is fucked right now. <laughs> Sorry, is that right? That I curse so yeah, much? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. We it's, love it. It's completely screwed up. Like, you're talking about, like, you know, it's in the natural food world, you know, it's, it's, we live in this crazy situation in society where the natural food world and actual real day-to-day -day chefs are completely separate universes. Yep. And day-to-day -day chefs who are the ones that have, you know, decades of incredible experience understanding about flavor and stuff, 
are uh, rotting away in restaurants that don't make any money, and yeah. the natural food world has half of Silicon Valley invested into it yes. right now. So in the alternative meat world, you know, some of the two largest companies, let's say Beyond and, and Impossible, and Beyond is, I don't know, have taken in probably one-fourth the funding as Impossible, and they, right? and they went public last week. Mm-hmm. And, and they, and, you know, these companies have taken in, you know, just the two of them alone, probably close to six, seven hundred million dollars in the past three or four years. Yeah. And, and there's just the, some of the top two. And all these, these ingredients pretty much sum themselves down to hyper processed coconut fat and pea protein, now soy protein, pretty much for all of them. Yep. And, and it's bullshit. It's, it's bullshit. It's like hydro- hydrogenated into like a weird yeah, it's, it's, taste it's, it's and complete texture. BS. This yeah. is what we did with tofu in the 80s. We just mm-hmm. we took this great product and we turned it into really shitty American tofu yeah. chili. Yeah, <laughs> it's so sad because good tofu is really good. This yeah. is our mentality of doing these things. And, it, and it's not, and you know, so for the work I do, I wanted to do. I wanted to approach it differently. I wanted to create products and alternative meats that we use alternative meat because that's relatable. The real thing issue here is we wanted to turn a corner and change the conversation and make vegetables the real um, start of the show. Mm-hmm. And and we still use them like meats, but they're vegetables. So we have jerkies that are made out of mushrooms or seaweed. And we have smoked. We well, the main thing. One of the ways to start is we we got drunk, smoked a watermelon last year, <laughs> and we got over 120 million views for it. Online. It went very viral. We were on every morning show, every <laughs> everything you can imagine, and we still get requests every day. I mean, we we have still to this day. It's a year later. We have production companies flying in from Russia to Japan to, to Germany, them. all for like one day shoots. <laughs> this fucking watermelon. It's nuts. Can you tell us what, what you did to the watermelon? How yeah, we, it tastes? We, it tastes good. It's okay. It's, it's pretty good. And we have other vegetable stuff that tastes way better. But the reason the watermelon did well, because it looks like a ham. Mm-hmm. And so it got coined like that way. And in the vegetarian world, people aren't used to, there's no showstopper cuts of meat. Mm-hmm. So there's no celebratory roast. There's no brisket. There's no prime rib. The closest thing we had was a tofurkey. <laughs> so so to see a watermelon, I mean, God bless. The one thing we've freaking done is spend millions of dollars and, and 50 years developing seedless watermelons. So yeah. thank you for that. Um, but we ferment it. We smoke it. We age it. We roast it. We're... We're able to look inside, you know, figure, work with these vegetables or fruits to figure out what the natural components are inside of them and work with those natural components, whether it's to uh, firm them up or build a skin or whatever it is. If a fruit has more pectin than others or anything we can do, um, you know, for the watermelon, we actually cure in ash. Mm-hmm. So we use high alkalinity to help us cure. Um, but either way, you know, we... What we're excited about is that this opened up a whole new frontier for us to do whole vegetables and whole fruit. And so we're actually we're in the process of coming out with a whole line of smoked carrot dogs that actually, and that sounds ridiculous because like, oh, no shit, dummy, like a carrot. It looks kind of like a hot dog. <laughs> like, yeah, I swear we're not just putting carrots on a, on a bun. Um <laughs> But I mean, listen, people do I'm sell sure that would rock be good in too. the 80s. <laughs> yeah. But listen, so... And we figured out ways of doing it where if you bite into the carrot, it actually snaps like it's an encased meat. Okay. 
Um, are you, are you able a, to reveal how it's done? All I can say is that we just, we're not rewriting the book. We're, we're doing ways that we've done for thousands of years on meat, but we're adapting those to vegetables. Um, it's, it's, you know, it, it snaps, bites, tastes like a smoked hot dog. And if you put it on a pan or grill it, it even bubbles up like a sausage. Um, and there's, you know, three ingredients into it. And, and one of them is salt and the other one is a carrot. So <laughs> it's, it's not rocket science. It just takes a long time. And, it, and yeah, we label things as like a watermelon ham or it's a hot dog, whatever it is. It's, it's semantics. It's a, it's a smoked carrot. We, we don't expect it to taste like smoked pork, and we don't expect smoked pork to taste like smoked salmon. Mm -hmm. It's just opening up a new door and a new direction to whole foods, except using them and utilizing them in different ways and more, you know. And it doesn't mean we don't like raw watermelon. I yep. still prefer a really good <laughs> raw watermelon. I, I wasn't set out to do a anti-raw watermelon <laughs> bashing, you know, campaign but you know um we got plenty of people emailing us saying we were so it's amazing but um but you know listen it's we spent the first half of our career getting handwritten hate mail from PETA once a month and three weeks ago we headlined their front the front page of their website really for the work we've been doing and it's and and at the same time um maybe this will will um you know ruin my good graces at the moment with them but um, we have no interest in taking away meat from mm -hmm. our menus and in our life. Um, you'll find that even statistically, the with the rise of vegetarianism, the majority of people are flexitarian. Yeah. And I think what we're all looking for, so many people are looking for, and I could say we all because it's relative, definitely myself is looking for, and my sister is just more veggie forward food yeah. let's eat more vegetables let's make that more the star of the show and let's still eat meat and fish but let's eat less of it and in doing so let's make it even more special let's make it even more delicious and not only that but let's make even more responsible choices with it and with that smaller amount of meat that we're consuming allows us to create even deeper relationships to where it's from mm -hmm. and more healthy sustainable choices for not just us but the larger picture and and we can't do that with the amount we consume now. Yeah, you know, it's a. I think it's a dangerous battle or that we're kind of in right now, where it feels like if you're you have to go extreme one way, you're totally vegan. You're kind of demonizing me. <laughs> this is the story of the yeah. world. You and, know, it's not. And we're how so do you find that balance, right? It's, it's so crazy. This is just the story of us all. This is with politics. This is with everything. We're such a big bunch of dummies it's ridiculous it's, <laughs> yes <laughs> it's, it's we always want a golden champion we yep. always want this was the Pure argument all. with uh sustainable energy back in the 90s and they, you know we oh no it's wind energy no it's hydro no it's it, no it's yep. everything it's different cases have different scenarios and, and it's a wide spectrum of all these different ideas and techniques and you know that's what's going to get us there you know, I think we were talking about this earlier. My, the past two years, I've been working on seaweed mm -hmm. and sustainably farmed kelp. And that's been driven in many forms as the you know great savior yeah. to sustainability. And, 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 and even, and I, and I agree, I think it's really like, a, you know, I told you, I think it's potentially the most sustainable form of large-scale agriculture in the world. 
it's still going to take a lot of different things yep. to get us to the point we need, and there's not going to be a single answer for um, it. We can't all just start eating kelp overnight and only kelp. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, unless you're, you know, square bob. You can't. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it doesn't have all the nutrients we need. But it's really good, and it's a really good thing to do, and that, collaborating with smaller form, farms and more vegetable-forward diets... And, you know, I think we can get somewhere that's really inspiring. Well, with that, we're going to take a short break and we'll be back in about two minutes. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. I'm Patrick Martins. I'm Brandon Hoy. And I'm Emily Pearson. Together we host The Main Course OG, where we cover food news and culture. Browse episodes of The Main Course OG wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. And welcome back to Why Food. This is your co-host, Jenny Dorsey. No, Ethan today, again. Ethan is off having fun without us, but I'm in here in the studio with Will Horowitz, who is the co-founder of Ducks Eatery and Harry and Ida's Meat and Supply Co., as well as the co-author of Salt Smoke Time. Like, afraid that I'm going to get that in the wrong order. Uh, we were just talking about uh, kelp and how kelp is really good for us, very nutritious for us, kind of been lauded as the next superfood sort of thing. Can you tell us a little bit more about just the different types of kelp, water, water-based kelp, land-based algae that we were talking about earlier, and kind of where do you think that's going? Uh, kelp is interesting, and obviously, you know, there's plenty of countries when you get to a lot of um, Asian countries that have been working with kelp for uh, generations and generations. So, you know, Japan and Korea and China have a huge amount of kelp mm-hmm. farms going uh, for a long time. Not that they're all sustainable. Sure. But, um, like <laughs> anything. But kelp is very much a part of the future of sustainability. Um, some of the main reasons of it is that uh, sustainable farmed kelp is zero input. So you don't need to feed it. You don't need to water it. It's in water. It doesn't take away, like we talked about topsoil, it's not taking away from the environment. It's actually only adding biodiversity and ecosystems and Mm -hmm. nutrients. So, you know, for all those types of reasons, and also that it grows incredibly fast um, and and really is low startup costs, 
it is, I think, internationally by, you know, chefs and farmers being donned as, as something less revolutionary. Um, like all things, I don't think it's the great savior because I don't think that word exists. Yeah. Um, one of, some of the research I found in kelp was that, um, yeah, it's a superfood for whatever that means. Yeah, um, unclear what exactly <laughs> that means. But yeah. but it sounds great. Um, but, uh, but it actually is very low on protein and things like that. And, and which is, don't get me wrong, you know, a lot of things like protein and a lot of nutrition is based on fads anyway. Um, I believe on average, the CDC is put out that I think Americans get, I don't know, something like maybe nine to 11% more protein than we can ever possibly need to survive. Yeah. So, you know, these are so much of these things are, uh, you know, are, are Valentine cards, you know, they're. Their, their marketing campaigns. Because um, protein was seen as like the most efficient calorie. I think that was the, that was the marketing for a while. It's, it's pretty wild <laughs> stuff. You know, I mean, that was the Atkins argument. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I could, I, you know, I, I, I could tell you at least from a, you know, not just a family of chefs, but a, uh, a father who was a chief of cardiology here at Beth Israel for 25 oh. years. Atkins was not the way to go. Oh no! <laughs> oh no! For, for a man that died of a heart attack, that was oh. not the way to go. So, you know, we're insane about these types of things. And with that being said, what does have a, a great amount of protein to offset things like, you know, kelp, is land-based algaes and freshwater algaes like spirulina and mm-hmm. things like that. And we're Spirulina has been interesting. It's been kind of kind of on a roller coaster ride of people investing in it and trying to figure out how that agricultural system looks like. Um, some of the more successful systems are equally being done in, you know, what look like uh, you know land-based fish farms, like uh, you know above-ground pools, essentially. Hmm. Just as much as in. Uh, you know, labs in basements of Brooklyn right now. So it's it's really interesting, but uh, the amount of protein that's in la- those types of algaes are equal, if not more, per capita than beef. That's crazy. And so it's, it's pretty amazing. So, you know, I can tell you as a chef, making a spirulino mayo actually, believe it or not, tastes fantastic because you're getting all this umami of the seaweed. Um, and it's pretty. It's pretty. Is is just at least for this uh, culture, is a lot easier for me to get people to accept or, or even if I have to sneak into their food uh, than it is insects, mm, which okay. has been such a big idea and, and, and fantastic one, but much more difficult to get pe- Just into on, people's hands. Um, even if it's like ground up in flour or like in an I mean, unnoticeable... I think the proof has been in the pudding. So, you know, there's some great companies and great people doing some incredible stuff with ground up, you know, insects. Um, but has, it's definitely been a struggle. Yeah. I can't speak to what their numbers are, but it's been, it hasn't been, you know, it's gotten a lot of waves of press, but there hasn't been a big boom of everyone going around eating insects and things like that. Um, you know, sometimes with seaweed, you have to kind of remind people that, Hey, that's like, that's what's wrapping your Seven uh, Eleven sushi <laughs> to normalize it a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Because pretty much that's spread to everywhere now, so at least we have that as a base. Sure. Um, 
but you know it's it's we're still trying to figure out the seaweed there's you know 50,000 plus different you know species of, of brown algae of kelp that are edible to begin with so we're still trying to figure out in every climate what our our soy corn and rices are you mm-hmm. know what our main crops are going to be and here we predominantly tend to harvest uh, sugar kelp and horsetail kelp okay. um, in the northeast and you know from Connecticut Rhode Island to Maine there's been you know, huge improvement in um, getting farmers started and switching over maybe fishing, you know, unsustainable fishing practices and businesses to, to kelp farms. Um, but it's really moving slow. And uh, last year I started a company, a co-founded a company with some partners called Akua, which is a kelp jerky that I made of oh, yes. kelp and mushroom stems. Um as I'm not as involved anymore, I'm still one of the partners of it, uh, and and so you know that was an interesting one for me to work on, and I definitely became very intimate with seaweed. One of the things we also were talking about over lunch is um, kind of as you push uh, companies and you know chefs and everyone else to be more sustainable it also needs to work in a for-profit sort of environment they still have to be able to make money in order to galvanize uh, galvanize and intrigue other organizations to enter that space can you kind of talk about how you think through that sort of model or how you think how we shift into a food system where people can still be in it for their own interests so to speak but also for the world Absolutely. So, you know, that's been definitely something very near and dear to me. And and watching a lot of the nonprofits work in the food systems has been extremely inspiring. And what, you know, what makes sense to me is that the only food nonprofits that end up actually working long term are the ones that are going to be at the very least catalyst for other for profit sustainable systems. Yeah. And at the end of the day, you know, what we're doing as chefs and what I'm doing in the restaurant or to the carrots or to watermelons <laughs> or to goat necks or any of these types of things or seaweed comes down to one basic element, which is I'm working to take something that's undervalued and I'm learning from thousands of years of the past and from nature ideas and techniques on how to create more value for it. And if I can do that, and I could afford to pay the goat farmer more for something they might have been tossing into dog food. Mm-hmm. I can make more money for my small business and restaurant. And I could do it making food that's more accessible to the communities that need it the most. Mm-hmm. And by taking these ideas and these old school, this, this old knowledge that we have of whether it's fermenting or smoking, whatever it is, just creating something that's going to create more value out of something. Um, I can connect all three, so the struggling farmer, to the struggling restaurant, to the struggling community. And, and it's the only system that can lift these microeconomies and communities without having to take handouts or yeah. big boosts that are, are from larger corporations coming in or, or, or whatever it is. Because the thing about that and the thing truthfully with any you know, larger amount of money being injected fast into communities is that you don't actually move farther away from the cliff. The cliff just gets higher. Mm-hmm. And so if you do drop off that cliff, <laughs> it's a lot longer the way down. And when we look at places like you know Detroit and stuff like that, you see very actualized examples over the years. And there's been plenty of fishing towns up the northeast that have been just like that. It's no, no um, 
you know, it's it's not a by accident that these areas uh, that were previously supported by larger corporations happen to now be some of the larger concentrations of opioid abuse and things like that. And it's also challenging when you want to be sustainable and sustainable is, you know, in vogue right now, or I guess it's always been in vogue, but very much more in vogue now, whereas also we kind of said on lunch, it's like you don't also only want to be uh, feeding the one person no, who absolutely. can afford it. And that's that's such a big problem. You're 100% right. And, it's, and, it's, and there's been so many great chefs and people have done, you know, really publicized the use of food waste and things like that. But, you know, when you do these things and you're, and you're charging a leg for them, yeah. then it doesn't really... Besides the PR value, it doesn't mean anything. It's not an equitable, it's not a more equitable system that you're building. Bring me the top chefs in the country and let's all get together and let's figure out ways of making this food so that it's helping the farmer and making it more accessible to the people that can't afford it. Good food and that are surviving off of fast food and cholesterol. So that so those are the people that need it. Those are the people that are facing you know, essentially a plague, you know? Um, and so that that's that should be the mission right now for everybody. Who do you think is, what chefs and what other organizations do you think is, are doing a good job of trying to actually change the system and what can we do as a collective society who, who are interested but potentially, you know, don't have tons of money to donate? Like, how can we get sure. more plugged in? You know, I think, you know, for a lot of people, it's figuring out there's all sorts of good ideas and techniques and ways figure out how do you shop at the farmer's market in a way that's actually on a budget that's mm-hmm. not nominal how do you go up to you know farmers ask for their scraps ask for what they're you know look at what's cheap and and look back whether it's at your grandparents or your buddies and look back and figure out how to make that delicious i think that's one of the main things everybody can do and create a skill set for and and again so many of those answers is just looking into our own past um when it comes as a whole, I mean, there's been so many great chefs that have done so many incredible things and much more than me. Um, you know, I could say that um, over the past few years, I've been friendly with uh, um, uh, Massimo Batora and his wife, Lara, and family. Um, and from a, a couple of uh, Cook It Raw trips in Mexico and, and beyond. And, um, you know, one of the things that was so inspiring to me about watching families like that is that once he got his, you know, coveted number one in the world award and, you know, for, for whatever that's, that's worth and, you know, as a chef, it's worth quite a bit. Um, unlike a lot of other chefs I saw do that, what was so inspiring is that he took that and he went down to places like Rio and, you know, fed uh, 10,000 people uh, banana peel bacon or, yeah. you know, <laughs> things like that. And, and whether they were fantastic tasting or weren't fantastic tasting, I have no idea. I wasn't there. <laughs> but either way, just to the the PR of that, the campaign of that, to say, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to take this crazy amount of press and this award that I got and this, you know, incredible accomplishment. And I'm going to go and, and spend the craziest year of my life running around to all these countries and trying to make byproducts and waste something that's nutritional and great to eat for people that and communities that need it the most is to me the most inspiring thing you could possibly do as a chef um it doesn't mean that you can't also run a three-star michelin restaurant (laughs) on the side or or as your main focus 
but to pair that and to use that fame, that incredible research you're doing, whatever it is, to use it in a way that will also help people is, is, is the best thing you could possibly do because otherwise, what's it, what exactly is all that research for then besides yeah. your own fucking vanity? Yeah. Yeah. The the that's what it comes down to, you know? And so, um, to bring this all kind of back to what we're, we mentioned very briefly at the beginning of the podcast, what about people who might be interested in starting foraging on their own to <laughs> s- s- sustain themselves well, a little bit? <laughs> you know, <laughs> well, that, that's definitely, that's definitely doable. I definitely, you know, I, at the same time, I don't want to see a world where everything is completely foraged and, and, and there's literally no more nature left around yeah. cities, but at the same time. Learning to forage is something that needs to be done um, tandem with learning with responsible and sustainable, you know, harvesting. Yep. Um, and it's the same thing to me for hunting as well. Uh, I'm definitely more and more as I get older, a big advocate for uh, conser- conservation driven hunting and fishing. Can you explain to us what that um, means? So, you know... Very, very simply, each area of land can only hold a certain amount of ecosystem. And if that ecosystem becomes unbalanced, and unfortunately so many have, and even more so, unfortunately, because of us and because of, you know, cities' growth, you know, growth and, and just, um, you know, there's so much, you know, population is probably the largest problem facing the world, obviously. Yeah. Um, and, and so there's less and less habitat for animals. And what happens, the same way as humans, is that breeds diseases. And you get more and more that end up dying in more massive amounts. Um, just because a land can't hold that you know, percentage. And that also takes a toll on the, uh, on the actual fauna and what they'll eat. And then that will take a toll on something else. So, mm-hmm. That type of overpopulation that's developed will actually crush ecosystems. Um, so, you know, I think that for me, I'm, I'm more and more in support of, of harvesting wild game and animals as respectfully as possible. Um, you know, I'm not definitely not into the, the bro romanticism of yeah. it. I think for farmers and hunters, anyone that kills an animal and isn't it doesn't have a uh, emotional response isn't sad by that deeply i think that you shouldn't be doing it you know i yeah. think that that's borderline sociopathic yeah. you know um but it doesn't mean that it shouldn't be done and and it's you know my real fight is is against the factory farm stuff um and for sustainably foraging it's the same thing you know picking what you need and making sure that what you picked isn't going to affect next year or the year after. And, you know, I have, um, living in the city now, I have still about, let's say, a smaller piece of land that I, I, public land that I foraged since I was a kid. That's about 900 acres or so. Oh, wow. And compared to, you know, other (laughs) places for here that's large. Um, And I've been foraging there as a kid. I grew up mountain biking in there, so I really know every tree, every rock really really well um and know where everything grows and so every year it's been a learning lesson rather than some sort of profitable foraging business for me yeah um although my maitake season's pretty (laughs) awesome and um but i i get to see how things come back 
get thing, you know. But the first year, I had this incredible area, and, and this is close to the city, so there's only so much stuff. I had this incredible, um, right when everyone started getting into uh, lichens uh -huh. and things, and that became a little crazy. And, and I learned how all these different history of lichens and and lichens is is people think that mycology is nuts. Is, is a oh, whole are they world different? Study. Lichens are very borderline with my mycelium okay. and actually work in tandem with mycelium, but it's always back and forth whether it's classified as mycelium. Okay. And they are something we don't even know the tip of the iceberg about. And so it's a whole nother world. <laughs> Um, but you know, I, I learned something really great about lichen is that when rain, reindeer, like when I decided I wanted to learn all about cooking with reindeer lichen, I cleared out a little patch that I knew I had somewhere and thinking that next year I would grow back and it didn't. And then I thought that maybe it'll take a couple years and I'll grow back and it's been 14 years and that hasn't grown back. So oh, wow. that was a learning lesson to me about picking lichen. <laughs> really? So, you know, learn what you're doing and learn what you're picking. And, and, and for your own safety, um, you know, start with just a couple things. And this is the rule for foraging mushrooms or wild elves. Start with a couple things that uh, you can, you know, research and you know the clear signs how not to confuse with something else. And there are just, you know, plenty of things like that. Um, here in the Northeast, there's probably about maybe five to seven mushrooms that there's a couple clear tell signs will not look like something else. And you start there, and you get comfortable, then you grow. There's an interesting uh, a statistic, I guess, I, I learned when I was um, doing a cooking class in Spain, and that, like, October is their mushroom-picking season, mm. and every year there's just X, like, percentage of uh, mushroom poisonings because, yeah. you know, kids go out and start picking everything. But it's, yeah, it, I haven't gotten sick yet. Well, they, I, they, I, they, they, I think the saying is, I'm, I know I'm going to mess this one up, is there's... There's old mushroom foragers and there's bold mushroom foragers, but there's no bold and old mushroom foragers. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that is true. Mycology humor is pretty nerdy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, when I went out with the mycolo mycological society, I was just like, people were really into... Mm -hmm. the, I was like, oh, wow, okay, I'm just here to try and eat all these <laughs> mushrooms. But it was a it was a interesting also just a nice three hours outside so yeah really and, and for me that's that's really the point of it you know is that um, you know I'm I'm a firm believer that um, you know being in nature and being something larger than yourself uh, is very important and and I love foraging but it's really an excuse for me to get outside and be outside. Well, Will, thank you so much for being here. Can you tell all our listeners where to find you, come eat at your restaurants, and follow, potentially buy some of your upcoming veggie hot dogs and such? Sure, absolutely. So um, you could definitely come visit me at Duck's Eatery and Harry Knight is in the East Village. I cook still at Duck's Eatery a couple nights a week. Monday is my big fun chef <laughs> night, so everyone come visit me. Um, and uh, my book is Salt Smoke Time which you could find hopefully everywhere, at least everywhere. for now. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and please, anyone feel free to uh, reach out to me if you're along the same path and working on the same ideas. Where where can they find you online? Um, you can find me at uh, online, huh, on the uh, website. Oh, okay. <laughs> Email us. <Okay. laughs> that personal thing? No, I mean, listen, follow me on Instagram. It's just Will Horowitz. It's real simple or Duck Seedery. 
and just come visit me. Don't worry about the online thing. Come say hi, drink a beer. Say hi in person. Eat a goat neck. <laughs> well, thank you again for being here. And as always, you can find us at Why Food Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. And you can send questions, comments, nominations for other people you'd like to hear on the show to whyfood at heritageradionetwork.org. Um, thank you to Amanda for being our sound engineer. And our theme song is Blind by the Red Crickets. See you next week. I lost my track of time at the piece of gold. We were face to face and back to my back. Went to a place that only I can know. That's why we. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.